Okay, um, turning your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. I had the, uh, the privilege of not having to read these sections because on our road trip, my wife was my uh, audio book. So she was reading to me, which was, I, I found it thrilling. I mean, I thought this is a great way to read a book. You know, just drive around and get it read to you. So uh, when I get to the next unit, I'll just get in the car and say, okay, let's do this again. But uh, Exodus chapter 3, I, I love the story of Moses because Moses was, um, you know, such a, what's the word I'm looking for? Such a mess up, wasn't he? I, I just love the story of Moses because in some ways he just, he just did a bunch of stuff wrong, but God loved him so much he just honored him. Okay. Now, let, now, I want you to take that thought right there, and I want you to say the same thing about yourself. I want you to just take the moment right now and just say it to yourself, okay? Go something like this. I'm such a, must, uh, a mess up, but God loves me anyway. You see, what happens is because we, we, live, we, we operate in a performance-based Christianity, we think... We really do think, or at least we act like we think, that the love of God slows down, stops, or changes direction when performance isn't what, we ex- what God expects. That's performance-based Christianity. And so, if, if, if I'm not performing at a level that I think I should be at or God expects, what happens? I don't feel the love coming at me. Or if, I don't, if, I, if I'm in a group of people who somehow look at me and say, you're not performing at the level you know, that we are, then I don't feel the love of God. And so that comes to us in the form of something called guilt. Guilt. Guilt is an unusual tool because it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Because if you feel guilty, what do you feel obligated to do? Make somebody else feel guilty, right? So what we do is we we operate in this strange Christian world of I don't feel worthy, then somebody else should not feel worthy either. They, in, in turn, say, well, then you don't feel worthy either. So instead of this Christianity that should be operating really on pure grace and the love of God, it operates on performance-based standards. I mean, you can see it. I, I, can, remember, um, I can remember pastoring my first church in South Louisiana. Tammy and I were there. We were sitting out on the little front porch. Man, it was really easy life. Let me tell you something. You know, we used to say, I can't wait to get out of here. And I'm going, that was pretty easy. But um, sit on that little front porch. You know, the little town had about 500 people in it. One of those towns, you know, you plug in your razor and the streetlight dims. I mean, it's awesome, right? And, uh, and I remember there was a girl named, I think her name was Debbie, if I remember well. And she comes walking up our street. She had about four children. And, uh, and she clearly had just been beaten up. Her husband had beat her up right? And it was, it was a common occurrence. And she was coming to try to see if we would pray for her husband. That was, that was her solution, right? She did not attend our church. She attended another church in the town that was pretty legalistic, okay? 
And I'm not saying it was a bad church. It was just pretty legalistic church. And so um, she had been and beat up many, many times. She had lost a baby. Her husband one time kicked her in the belly when she was pregnant. She lost her baby. She had her spleen ruptured. She had a collarbone broken. Uh, on and on and on and on I went. Okay. And every woman in here is saying, why did you go back? Why didn't you, you know, burn him up in the bed or something, right? Which would have been too good for him. Okay. So, so anyway, um, instead of uh, the solution always in the fundamental church that she went to or the, the, the legalistic church she went to, the solution was always you need to pray for your husband. You need to just pray for your husband. The problem is, what was the problem? It wasn't working. It wasn't working. So what she did was, she, when she said, would you pray for my husband, then she began to say all the reasons why she was justified in being beat up by her husband. You know, I know I need to be a better wife. I know, you know, he came home and my dinner wasn't, I didn't have dinner ready for him. And, and she went on and on and on, a long list. And so what was she operating on? She was operating on a performance-based Christianity and in a, in, a, in a structured, religious structure where guilt was really the, the, the whole tool that motivated everything that happened there. And I, I wish I could say that she found freedom in that, but she didn't. She went back, and that, that pattern, as long as we lived in South Louisiana, continued, and there was no change at, whatsoever. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, he says, um, uh, he said, you gladly bear up with those who take advantage of you and even strike you in the face. To my shame, I was too weak for that. He was talking about those who come in and they impose upon them all these, these heavy rules and all these heavy laws and, and take advantage of them, even, you know, kind of, a, kind of a, a metaphor, even strike you in the face, you put up with it. Because why? Because you're operating on this performance-based kind of Christianity. So now we come to a guy named Moses, okay? So Moses, we know the story. I mean, it's a, it's a great story of, of the deliverer, Moses, whom God used, you know, took a, took a short boat ride, was found, you know, raised up in the, in the home of, of Pharaoh, um, had everything he wanted, had, had really cool clothes, had great food, um, you know, had somebody to shave his head and all those other things those Egyptians did in those days, right? I mean, just everything was great. And, but inside of him was what? Was, there was a destiny inside of him. He was a deliverer, and he knew it somehow. We don't know how exactly. He knew that he was a deliverer. And God had put him in royal chambers so he could understand what it means to oversee a people. I think he was majestic somehow. I mean, I see him in majesty, and even though he's trying to get out of a lot of stuff later on, he is a majestic figure who understands what it means to stand in Pharaoh's courts. Otherwise, he never would have gone in on the ten plagues. Remember that? Let my people go. Hey, I'm not doing that. You're not doing that. There was something in him, right? There was a destiny. And all of a sudden he goes out and he sees an Egyptian, an Israeli, you know, the Egyptian's kind of a beaten up on the Israeli. And so what does he do? He goes over to this guy and he kills him. He buries him in the sand. And then all of a sudden the warrant for his arrest is issued and he takes off running. To where? The desert, Midian, right? Land of Midian. So 40 years in the, in, the, in the royal chamber, 40 years in the backside of the desert, and I don't think it was a pretty sight. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure it was glad, he was glad to get out of Dodge, but it was a bad scene all the way around. So then um, 
he, uh, we show up here, chapter 3, Moses says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock uh, to the backside of the desert. He came to Oreb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush burn? So not unusual probably for a bush to catch on fire in the desert. Those are old creosote bushes, and they would a lot of times, according to, to study, they would just ignite. But all of a sudden he stopped and said, wait a minute, this bush is different because it's burning, but it's not consumed. Why is it? Why is it burning and not consumed? And then when bushes start to talk, you know you've been in the desert too long. Amen. All right, Moses, take off your shoes. The ground on which you stand is holy ground, you know, and he's going, okay, you got my attention. You know, when bushes start to talk, you get, you get somebody's attention. Take off your shoes. Not a good move. You're in a desert, hot sand, snakes, scorpions, everything else. Take off your shoes. Ground's holy. Why did he tell him to take off his shoes? Why tell him to take off his shoes? Ground was holy. What else? Why take off the shoes? Is not the ground still holy with shoes on? Wasn't about, it wasn't about the fact that he had to have his feet necessarily on the sand, though that will later be revealed why that's important. But why did he have him take off his shoes? Huh? Is what? Oh, yeah, the old, okay. What else? Okay, obedience. Okay, what else? Vulnerable? Hey, I don't have the exact answer. We're just kind of guessing, right? <laughs> but one thing is, one thing is for sure, you're not running away if your shoes are off. I want you to stay put, Moses. I got something to say to you. I don't want you taken off when I say something you don't like. You've got to hear the word of God. You know, on that, uh, on that, uh, on that altar there in the tabernacle uh, where they would offer up the, uh, the, the animals, on each corner of, the, of that altar were horns. And they would tie the animal down on that altar because if it slipped off, it was an unacceptable sacrifice. You see, living sacrifices tend to walk off. That's why it says in Romans chapter 12, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer yourself as a what? Living sacrifice. The problem is with living sacrifices, they do what? They run off. So he's got Moses cornered here. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight into the shoe thing because later on, God would reveal to him in the building of the tabernacle that they were never to put a floor in the tabernacle, that the sand was to be the floor as a reminder that they were sojourners on the earth. In other words, I don't want you setting up shop with the tabernacle. I want you to remember you're on a journey. You're on a journey with God. And so that sand under the feet was going to come back to him in the design of the tabernacle, which was revealed. Remember, the tabernacle was revealed from heaven. It was already in heaven. And Moses, it says, just got the blueprint from heaven and reproduced it on earth. That was a heavenly blueprint. He didn't come up with some cool ideas. 
He saw it, reproduced it on earth. Kind of cool, huh? Okay, so he's sitting there, and he says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back into Egypt, and I want you to go in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Suicide, right? Dumb move, don't do it, don't go. No, I want you to let my people go. Okay, well, that's great. Um, well, who am I going to say sent me? I can't really go in and say a vegetable told me to come in. A bush told me to come show up. What do I say? And he said, I want you to say this. I want you to reveal who sent you. I am that I am. Moses, I'm everything you need. Until you get your shoes off, you can't see God as, as being your everything. Until you refuse to run away from the voice of God, you can't, God can't be your everything. Until you become vulnerable, until you become without that aid, and you're subject to the environment around you, you can't, God can't be everything. God had to say in the wilderness for 40 years to teach him how to be a shepherd. He learned how to be a king, learned how to be a prince. He Now he had to learn how to be a shepherd. Because he was going to shepherd people all across Israel for 40 years. Or the land of, you know, the land of the journey, right? The 40-year wilderness. He was going to shepherd people. He was incapable of shepherding people before he went 40 years into the desert. Think about his life. You know, we talk about plays. They're in three acts, right? First act, I'm in Egypt. Wow, this is really cool. Act two, second 40 years of my life. I'm in the desert. This sucks. Chapter 3, or Act 3, I'm wandering in the same desert 40 years. This ain't good either. That was God's plan for him. He had basically 80 years of misery in some ways. And then he had 40 years of almost living the life that wasn't real. And yet that was how God loved him. Wow, that's how God loved him. How about Joseph? Take that guy. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, Joe, seriously, you must have done something because <laughs> I'm performance-based. There must have be a part of the story that, that the Bible doesn't tell because why would his brothers really hate him that much and, and why would God just not love him? I mean, God put him in jail, falsely accused, you know, all this kind of stuff. Most of his life is like, are you kidding me? Because you know why I think that? Because I'm performance-based. The greatest love that God could do for Joseph was to sell him to slave traders and take him down into Egypt. How's that for a, a mouthful? The greatest love that God could do for Joseph was to get him falsely accused. How's that for a mouthful? The greatest love that God could do for Joseph was to put him in jail. How's that fit? Does it fit into your performance-based Christianity? Not mine. If God loves him, he would have got him out of jail, cleared his name, everything would have been cool, and he would have just got everything all together really quick, got to, you know, all that stuff. Greatest love for God was to shape his character. It was not to take care of his comfort. Is that a hard lesson for us to hold? It is for me. God is more interested in shaping your character than your personal comfort. Because God is creating you not for time but for eternity. 
God has a bigger plan for you than planet Earth, but he has to get you ready for the bigger plan on planet Earth in on-the-job training. Wow. So if you, if, you, if you find yourself always operating in this performance-based Christianity, you're never going to be happy, guys. You're never going to be happy because you're always going to realize, why is God not doing this in my life? Or why did God do that to me? Why does that hurt so much? Why, 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 God? Because you're operating on performance-based Christianity and not love-based. Hey, I'm not standing in front of you as an expert. I'm only telling you what is truth. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to incorporate it more in my life. Okay, so um, let's... Uh, Let's take a little bit another look here. Let's go, if you will. This is kind of good stuff, isn't it? Kind of good stuff. Um, um, I, I read some of this uh, this morning. We, we met with our, um, our group that's going to start our, our prayer ministry here, the, our weekday prayer ministry, in conjunction with our, our prayer ministry. So, um, you know, we, we don't have a name where, you know, it's basically going to be a house of prayer, but we're not a house of prayer. We're, we're our own expression of it. So we're trying to come up with some really cool name, but unfortunately, IHOP got the really cool name first. Um, they really did. I mean, you know, my, my house would be called a house of prayer for all people. Gee, how do I improve on that one? Okay. But I, I want to read this to you because I think this is so good. Um, is that okay if I read? You're, you're all right with that? Okay. Um, if you have the book, it's page uh, 112. And this is like worth highlighting, okay? Now, some of you only have the workbook, and if you want to get the book, I don't know if we have, I think we have some copies of this. and we, Yeah, we do? Okay. And then we also have workbooks over there if you don't have one and go, I'd sure like a workbook, okay? All right, so page 112. Throughout Scripture, we see that God takes the initiative in people's lives. He would encounter a person and reveal what he desired of them. The revelation was always an invitation for people to adjust their lives to God. No one to whom God spoke remained the same. All had to make the same major adjustments in order to walk with God. As they responded obediently, they experienced his character in different dimensions, such as counselor or provider or redeemer. What often happens when God begins to work around us is we become self-centered. We begin trying to manage what is happening or to expand upon and administer it. We must reorient our lives to God to see life from his perspective. We must allow him to develop his character in us and let him reveal his thoughts to us. Only then can we gain proper perspective on life. When you're God-centered, even the desires to do things that please God come from God's stirring in your heart. The Bible says it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to will and to act for his good purpose. If you keep your life God-centered, you will immediately want to participate in his activity when he reveals his plans to you. When you see God work around you, your heart will leap inside and say, thank you, Father, for letting me be involved where you are. When I am surrounded by God's activity and God opens my eyes to recognize his work, I always assume he wants uh, me to join him. You must be careful to identify God's initiative and distinguish it from your desires. A self-centered person tends to confuse his or her personal agenda with God's will. Moreover, the circumstances can always... He does. But sometimes I don't feel like it. All right. 
I have some cool trivia about God bless you, by the way, on the sneeze. I'll, I'll share it with you here in a minute. Moreover, circumstances can't always be clear. Now, listen to this. Circumstances can't always be a clear direction for God's leadership. Christians often talk about an open or closed door, asking God to close a door if they're not headed in the right direction. While it is admirable to seek indications of God's desires, the danger in this thinking lies in assuming that God's will is always the path of least resistance, i.e. an open door. For example, many people have told me that God led them to leave their current job or ministry position after having only been there a short time. Often they, when, when I ask them to explain the process they went through, they tell me that they sensed God's leading them to the first position, but after they arrived, problems and difficulties arose. They assumed God would not want them to remain under such difficult circumstances. So when a new door opened, they seized it as God's deliverance. That sound familiar to anybody here? I mean, isn't that kind of like how we think, right? At times, I challenge them, what do your difficult circumstances have to do with obeying God's will? Wow. If you're focused on self, you will always seek to protect yourself and pursue what is comfortable and what most builds you up. When times get hard, self immediately urges you to quit or flee and find another position. To the children of Israel, the Red Sea certainly appeared to be a closed door. But if you are God-centered, your focus remains on Him alone. Storms may rage around you, but as long as you have God in your sight, you'll stay on course. Often things do become more difficult after we obey God. You cannot determine if you're in God's will by whether or not things are going well in your, in your current circumstances. Open and closed doors are not always indication of God's directions. In seeking God's guidance, make sure that prayer, Scripture, and circumstances all confirm the direction that God is leading you in. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. If I, if, if I buy into that, now the Bible makes sense. If I don't buy into that, I live my life constantly worried and wondering why God does certain things or allows certain things in my life, i.e. difficulties. Now, all of a sudden, if that's true, now I understand that the tough things that Moses went through to finally get people out of Egypt, the tough things that Joseph went through finally make sense because God had him on a path. When you read that Joseph thing, do you remember, I think we did that one night, how many times it said that God favored him and yet he's in jail? Well, what kind of favor is that? That not a good favor? I want different favor. It's like that old line from, uh, what was that one, Fiddler on the Roof? You know, if we're the chosen people, would you choose somebody else? I mean, this is not good stuff, Right? Not good to be a Jew. I don't want to be a Jew if this is chosen. And so God does take us on a path, and sometimes that path doesn't make sense. So here's Moses. So all of a sudden now Moses, watch this, Moses goes into Pharaoh. We go through ten plagues, right? Finally, the tenth plague comes, and they've, they've had it. They've done with him. We're out of here, right? Why ten plagues? Why not nine? Why not eleven? It's just... Think that around for a minute. But shout it out if you've got an idea. You ever thought about that? Good. I'm glad we got some fresh thinking going on here, right? Anybody got an idea? Why 10? Why not 9? Why not 8? Why not 12? Why, why, why 10 plagues? Huh? 
Ten Commandments. Well, that's good. Okay. I mean, at least there's a ten in the number, right? The ten, we got a ten going here, right? What else? Got ten fingers, ten toes, right? Okay, 10 is the first number with a double digit. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that one. We're not looking for wrong answers, just right ones. Because 10 is like the top, like much younger than the rest. Well, you may not have the right answer, dude, but you definitely scored. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we're fishing. We're fishing a little bit. Okay. Um, I'm going to help you. You go, you go into a bank, and you're a robber. And you tell them to what? Stick them up. What does that mean? What's up? What's going to get sticked up? I want to see, see your hands, right? Mother has a little baby. What's the first thing they ask? Almost always ask the f- how many fingers and toes does he have? Ten in the scripture is a number of a, of a testimony. A testimony. So what happens is, why does, God, why does God create a system of giving that's based on the number ten called a tithe? It's a testimony. It wouldn't be until the tenth plague came that the final testimony that they said, it must be God. It must be God. Interesting, huh? So what happens? They're so sick of them. Now they fear God because they know this is not the God of the, of the sorcerers of the first three or four plagues. This is, a, this is the true God. They say, not only may you go, would you please go quickly and the scripture even tells us that God says, now go to them and ask of them silver and gold. Plunder the Egyptians. And it says God brought the favor on Israel and they plundered the Egyptian. They gave them as much gold and silver and precious things that they wanted. And out of Dodge they go, gold and silver, headed to the Red Sea, Right? They don't even, they're probably thinking to themselves, we've got gold and silver, we can start life over. And the gold and silver had nothing to do with their personal pleasure. It had to do with the building of the tabernacle because everything about them was to, for them to understand the true God so they could understand the true God loved them. That's what it's all about. I want you to see how I love you. I'm going to get you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you all this gold and silver that you want to put in your pocket, but it's not for you. It's for me so that you understand in true worship how much I love you. And when you understand how much I love you, then you're going to be able to love. It's just, it's just such a great concept, isn't it? And he does this with, with this guy Moses. I mean, you're thinking, Wow. What a powerful, powerful thing that God is doing. And, and Moses begins to go, and, and if you just take your Bible at Exodus for a minute, I want you to go to chapter 12. And by the way, that, um, um, that whole idea of, of the favor of God is, you can see it really in chapter 11 if you want to look at it. But chapter 12 is Passover. 
And so God says, okay, remember the lamb you killed. Okay, we're going to take, we're going to do Passover here. We're going to remember what happened there. And he takes them through a series of three different kind of lambs. Right? Watch it. Verse 3, he said, uh, on the 10th day of the month, sound familiar? You can look at the number 10 a little different from now on. On the 10th day of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Okay? Will you write down somewhere or circle in your Bible, a lamb? Make sure you put that indefinite article, a, in front of it. A lamb. This is going to get good. It may not feel like it yet, but it's going to get good. Okay? Just hang with me. A lamb. Now look at verse 4. And if the household is too small for the lamb, now put the lamb. It started out as a lamb. Now it's gone to the lamb. And then verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb. Now let me tell you the significance of that. A lamb. Pick out a lamb that meets the qualifications of being spotless. A lamb. Now it is your lamb, okay? It's, it's the lamb. That's the lamb. Take the lamb. Bring it over here. Now, according to the Jewish custom, what they would have to do, the law, they would have to set the lamb aside for a while, and they would watch it and make sure it was, it was not diseased, sickly, or anything else. That's when it became your lamb. That's when the kids would go down and they would play with that lamb. They would probably name the lamb. Oh, this little lamb here, this little lamb is fuzzy, or whatever the lamb's name is, right? This is a little bouncy, you know? This is our little lamb. We love our little lamb. Come over here. Let's feed the little lamb. Oh, we're feeding the little lamb. They start to love the little lamb. They play games with the little lamb, and then one day the day comes when the father says it's time to kill the lamb. I love the lamb. How can you kill the lamb? That's our lamb. You see, it was all about love. We see that lamb there that you love so much? The way that little lamb is going to show his love for you is he's going to die for you. And when you understand that that little lamb that you grew to love and appreciate was really all about love, it was all about God loving you. So all of a sudden you fast forward to the New Testament and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I take your sin away, you'll know how much I love you. And when you have your sin taken away, then you'll know how to love other people. See, I got a funny feeling that, that we, we don't appreciate or love people the way we should because we don't really know how much we're loved. Does that resonate with you? If I don't feel loved, I don't know how to love. I think a lot of times people that, you know, are hateful or spiteful or mean, I think... You know, it's just sad because they don't really know how much they're loved. You know, in my, in my time when I, you know, if I'm, if I'm angry or bitter or, you know, anything going on in my head, it's just something's wrong with my understanding of God's love for me. That's all, you know. So our first reaction, if somebody's like that, you want to react. No, don't react. Just love them. You know who showed us that? It says, though, though he, he was like a lamb to the shearer, 
He opened not yet his mouth. Though he was slandered, he did not slander in return. See, revenge, revenge never fits in the word of God, does it, for a Christian? We can't do it. Hey, do you want to do it sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to get even? You bet. But that's not, that's the human side of us, right? It's not the divine side. The divine side of us is always, I just, how can I not love when I've been loved so deeply? And when I just, when I step back, let, just let the waves of love come over you so then you can love in a way that is counterintuitive to everything that we understand about life. That's what made Jesus so unique. I mean, here's, here's the Son of God hanging on a cross, and they have stripped him, beat him, cursed him. They've done horrible things to him, and he says, Father, forgive them. Well, where do you get that kind of stuff? I want that kind of stuff, right? I want that kind of love. I want that kind of grace. I want that kind of, you know, I, that's what I want in my life. Because I don't, Phil doesn't want to do that. Phil wants to go, how many angels can I call? What can I do to these folks down here on the ground? Oh, I can wipe them out? Well, let's just wipe half of them out. That way the other half can beg for mercy. You know what I'm talking about. You felt that from time to time. Am I right? Am I, am I the only guy that is human here? Okay, so what? why? So I can understand his love coming at me powerfully coming at me now I can love 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 that kind of love that's laid out in chapter 12 is a kind of love of the father can I just take you on one more little journey here is that okay and then we're gonna we're gonna sing a little bit worship a little bit pray a little bit um go over to chapter 13 now 13 is historically a number of what Historically, it's a number of rebellion, right? It's a number that we've attached all kinds of bad stuff, you know, like there's no 13th seat on an airplane. You know, it goes from 12 to 14. The guy that's in 14 is really in 13. He just doesn't know it. In a lot of elevators, they don't put floor 13. I mean, they do goofy stuff to try to trick you because people are superstitious about the number 13. It's a number of rebellion. I mean, when we rebelled against England, we formed how many colonies? 13, right? 13. Okay. I don't know if you got 12. We got 13. Okay. It's okay. Give that woman a history lesson. Okay, now. <laughs> it's okay. This is fun. That's okay. It's kind of like. Uh... Okay. The firstborn. Now watch this. There's something special about the firstborn in God's economy. Jesus was the firstborn, right? Okay. But before that, there's firstborns all along, and they were given, you know, a greater share of the inheritance. A lot of, you know, a lot of cool stuff came just because you got first. Remember Jacob? Even at his birth, he was grabbing onto his brother's heel. They were twins. And he finally got the birthright. He got the birthright. You know, he got to be firstborn in terms of his blessing. Okay, now, what we have in chapter 13, and this is really significant because where it comes, chapter 12, we've got this whole Passover thing, right? Chapter 13 of the book of Exodus, now it, it comes, it's really interesting. Verse 11, it shall, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, 
as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart uh, to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from the, an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Interesting. Man, they just finished Passover, and now he's talking about donkeys. Now, I don't know about you, but it'd be easy to read past this one. Are you with me? Okay, now let me just show you here something. This is, this is just so powerful. He says, you shall re- redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons shall you redeem. So it shall be that when your son asks um, you in time, saying, What is this? You shall say, By the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, and now it just kind of leaves you whole with the whole donkey story, not knowing what's going on. Poor donkey. Why are you breaking the neck of a donkey? Okay, now hold that thought. Remember, There was King Saul, and then there was King David, and then King Solomon. Remember that? Okay, King Saul was the king. What was his profession before he was king? Ooh, that's a good trivia question. He was in charge of the donkeys. Exactly right, Brian. He was a donkey herder. What was... David's profession. He was a shepherd of sheep. The donkey in Scripture is a type or a picture of a lost man. He's stubborn and rebellious. Watch this. Proverbs says, he who often stiffens his neck will suddenly find it broken and that without healing. Do you see the picture? Proverbs says, a person who stiffens his neck and says no to God is like a donkey. He will find his neck broken, that is, without cure. What God says is, in this typology here, that a donkey is a type of a lost man, and I redeem a lost man with one thing. What is it? A lamb. Isn't that great? In that typology, in that picture of, of saying, if you, if you don't offer up a lamb for that donkey, that donkey's going to die. Do you want that donkey to live? Then offer up a lamb. God looks in the economy, says to his son, do you see those people? If you don't die, all those people are going to die. It's the love of God. Wow. Is that good or what? And it's just Bible. It's just there, setting in the donkey story. Right? It's just a donkey story. But it's about the love of God and the revelation of God and how God shows us something about His pursuit of us. And, he, and, and here's the thing. On every, on every page, on every corner of every page, God has these truths. They're there. And they always point back to one thing, simply this. Love of God. Okay, one final scripture, and we're going to sing. You might speak with the tongues of men of angels, but you have not love. Your clashing cymbals sounding brass. Hey, you know, all these gifts, these cool gifts that we have here on earth, they're going to they're gonna pass. 
but what never fails? Love. See, it never fails. Why? God is love. First John, God is love. I never go wrong with love. Everything else I go wrong with. Well, I'm going to use reason. You're going to go wrong. I'm going to use logic. You're going to go wrong. I'm going to use law. You're going to go wrong. Love never fails because love always supersedes everything else, and it is the only thing that's going to be eternal in terms of those kind of principles. Just keeps going. Just keeps going. Love of God. Love of God. Love of God. Amen. So my final word to you is let God love you. Let God love you. Amen.